0: You are listening to the Hoops Fix Podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.
1: Welcome to episode 27 of the Hoops Fix Podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. We're back after a little mini hiatus for Christmas and the New Year. Hope you all had a good break. feels good to be doing interviews again. Um, Yesterday, I sat down with Martin Henlon. Obviously, Martin Henlon had a very successful pro career. Former senior England and GB international. I've got a shout out Daniel Routledge actually, who sent me a lot of contextual information um, about where he's played and the kind of things that he's done. Which uh, yeah, I struggled with a with a Google search. As you well know, it's it's hard to get the background information sometimes. But Routledge helped me out on that. Um, and yeah, and, and now Henlon works in sort of with a where well, he's got his own company doing media consultancy and media distribution. So he's got a very unique perspective on this whole British basketball thing, uh, not only from his own career, uh, which, as you'll hear, has got some incredible stories, um, but also kind of where he's sitting now and how he's seen uh, not only the BBL but GB take steps forwards or steps backwards um, in recent times with regards to uh a lot of different things and so he's got really good perspective and and, you know to be honest we didn't we didn't get a chance to go into a lot of the things that i wanted to go into we spoke for a little over an hour um but we've said that we're going to do a part two at some point maybe even a part three to kind of dig into this stuff a little little deeper um so yeah, anyway, it's good to be back. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Have a listen, let me know what you think. As always, uh, my email address is sam at com. available on all social media profiles at hoopsfix. We'd love to hear your feedback. And once again, um, if you have a spare second, if you could leave us a rating and review on iTunes, would be much appreciated and help the podcast spread. So you have a listen, let me know what you think. Here's my conversation with Martin Henlon. We're honoured to be here today with Martin Helen, 15-year pro-former England GB International and now currently the managing director of his own uh, media distribution and consultancy company. Martin, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me on, Sam. It's a pleasure to be with
1: you. So, like I kind of said just before we, we started recording, there's kind of two, two parts of this that uh, I want to cover and sort of the first part is, you know, the basketball part uh, and the second part is kind of talking to the present day and kind of your take on it because I feel you've got sort of quite a unique um, perspective. So let's let's start with the basketball side of things um let's rewind uh right back to the start and what was it what was the first thing that got you into basketball that that made you play the game
0: i can tell a very simple story i learned how to play basketball because it was raining so uh in my when i was growing up it would have been back then we called it fourth year but nowadays i think it's called year 10 um, you got to choose what sport you did in games. Um, and so all the uh, the boys were in the gym. It was absolutely hammering down outside. Um, and there was four choices, rugby, football, hockey, and this thing called basketball that I'd done in PE maybe once or twice. So I was 14 going on 15 at the time. Um, I was already the goalkeeper for the school football team. I already played number eight for the rugby team. Hockey, you've got to be kidding me, right? um so that left basketball said okay i'm staying in here i'm staying here and that was it i started playing um as it turned out um the teacher who has happened so often in in this country the teacher turned out that he played for england in the 60s and he was um you know he was very passionate about the sport and i kind of took to it pretty quickly um and then i ended up going off down to a club and it sort of the um spent the first two years of my, uh, my, my ingestion into the world of basketball, trying to do one thing. First of all, was trying to actually shoot, which I was terrible at. And then, of course, the obsession that every teenager has, which is trying to dunk the wretched thing. <laughs> um, you know, so it's not different to many other stories that you'll have over here. Um, but once I started playing club basketball, um, it just sort of, kind of took on a life of its own. Um, and you've got to remember, of course, in the... In the early 80s, which was what we're talking about then, you know, the, we didn't have the social media, so sport was my passion. So you know, as I always say, if they keep a score and there's a prize for first and second, I'll watch it. I don't care what it is. Um, you know, and if Britain is good at it, even better. So it could be naked granny wheelchair racing. If GB <laughs> is number one in the world, I'm all over it. Um, so yes, and Steve Nelson, um, I think you've done before on, on one of your podcasts, went to school with him. So, he went along to a club called the West Bromwich Kestrels, um, and I ended up going down there with him, and then we just kind of kept on playing, and the kind of the rest is history sort of thing.
1: So, what was the, um, you know, when, when those early years, when you sort of first started playing, what was the kind of, uh, the basketball cultural landscape in this country? What was your perception of the sport? Well, what was other people's as well?
0: That's that's a fair description of it. So, Uh, Again, not hugely different. I was born and bred in Birmingham um, where there was – at the time it was when um, the whatever the league was called back then was on um, Channel 4, so there was a fair amount of coverage. Um, The Birmingham Bullets were the team that everybody knew locally. Um, And in terms of uh, my age group – you know, we, you know, Crystal Palace was the junior program that everybody was just in awe of. Warrington had some, well, I'll come back to who was playing on it. Um, Warrington had a strong program. Um, Manchester, they, it fumbled around, but the bullets were our obsession. It was a great local rivalry between my club, West Brom, which for the senior level was in the, the division two at those days. Um, and, but bullets, of course, being the premium. Uh, club, and so they had the likes of, uh, oh gosh, so the juniors on that team, Mike Landell, I know still involved Dougie, uh, Ken Scott, um, who's, gosh, the, the most talented player you've ever seen, um, uh, Dave Brown, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, um, and then over at West Brom there were just me and Steve Nelson, and uh, oh, one kid that you, you know, is it Jacob Brown yeah, Sam yeah. Round, yeah. so their dad played with us, Mike. My grand. Who, and this is how hilarious we were, his nickname was Square. (laughs) (laughs) I I was a typical teenager, Sam, who fell in love, who always loved playing sport, and I wanted to try everything. My dad was obsessed with me trying to do different things. So when I got the chance to play basketball, he pushed me, he encouraged me to do it. To get from where I lived to West Bromwich, it was two buses. We used to go train twice a week. Um you play at weekends, it was, you know, piling kids into a minibus. But the the biggest difference was though that the junior games used to happen immediately before the senior games, more often than not. So if we were playing a team from Division One, um, so Bullets, that junior game would happen before Bullets played their men's game. Uh. So that meant we got to watch we got to be much more engaged with um the senior players than what we probably would have Expected to nowadays, I imagine they don't even come across each other unless you train with them. Um, but the, it's sort of like the, the, it was, it, the domestic players had the biggest names within Birmingham, um, of those days. So Steve Asinder was sort of like a hero of mine. As it turns out, he was a, a you know, a PE teacher, but he played for the bullets and so he was great. But so it's, um, but I loved it and, you know, it was very weak infrastructure. It was very colloquial and by that I meant it was, it was controlled by not this again, not so different from today. By um, there were certain figureheads within certain parts of the sport. So the head coach of the England under 18s, I guess it would have been back then, um, was the head coach of the Birmingham Bullets junior team. And so, not you won't be surprised to know that most <laughs> of the England players made out of Bullets players. Um, you know, there's some people that had. had you know legendary today as they were back then hasn't changed joe Forber was the master of manchester Humph long was the master of um, east london yeah. um so you know you go down to play East london royals once a year just to take your 50 points banking and go on and say thank you very much <laughs> um, but then the unique situation was crystal palace because they were the well, it, because at the time they had the WICB tournament the big christmas tournament so the men's team was playing at the higher echelons in europe as well and their junior team, so the under 19s didn't compete in the under 19s. So they would put their under 17s out against the under 19s. So I never got to play. And that team had Joel Moore, Steve Bucknell, um, Basil Phillips, you know, that, that's sort of it. Well, we never got to play against them. It was, um, Eddie Fontaine and, and uh, gosh, I can't remember half the other guys that played. It seemed like a bunch of six, seven guys. And then you see the under 19 squad. Um, uh, you know, Joe White would have been on that team as well. You're like, oh, gosh, they got grown men playing over there.
1: Yeah.
0: But it was, I think the sport back then was, uh, you know, it was, the career option wasn't there. Um, we knew about this thing about maybe going to the States. You know, you heard about some kids going off over there. Um, but there was great rivalry between clubs at age groups. So we all sort of went through for three or, f- uh, three years, I think I played juniors. Um, and as I mentioned, Crystal Palace, the, the club there, the rivalry with, with Bullets was eternal. Um, then, you know, Warrington, Manchester, Carl Miller, Alan Bannister, um, the biggest monster you've ever seen, but the nicest seven foot four guy I've ever met. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was a, a, you know, and we all sort of knew each other. Carl Brown was the, well, was already almost the mayor of Leicester as he <laughs> has been formed today. So, I mean, Leicester was another club that we would have played against a lot. And back then, the, so you, there was, if you got picked for the England squad, you had to go to training, um, and the, the hell that that was. But then they also had the Guinness School of Sport. I don't know if that still runs. And what that would do is have four or five sports on one of the sports campuses around the, 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 camp, the, the country. And it'd be like a week's camp and it would cost next to nothing. Um, and for us, the Midlands, we went to Lillishaw. Um, and that was when you got to play against all of the other, you know. So the Bullets would be combined with us, with Leicester, with the guys from Coventry. And that was when you figured out actually those guys aren't as good as we, they thought they were. <laughs> um,
1: so uh, at what point, you know, you, you mentioned then briefly that there, there was, it wasn't really a career option. Like, I mean, at what point did it become serious for you and kind of what was your thought process in terms of like uh, your future in basketball?
0: Right. So then. So, as I said, my introduction to school, went to a club, started playing for the club. Um, I got picked for the England under-19 squad for Dave Fisher's club. Um, that, yeah, it was. he was based an extension of his club. Um, went to went to the camp um, and went up again. And the other bigs that they had, Alan Bannister, I've already mentioned, um, a chap from Brighton called Gary Cole. Um, I think that was about it. And there was one other... Um, knob who just really wasn't very good and I was like these guys i destroy when we play against them um, so I'm expecting to make the team and I got cut and I was and that was the thing that flicked the switch on on me I was like how dare you cut me and of course you know so you cut me because I'm from West Brom I, I had been asked to move over to the bullets and I just no I was like you weren't interested in me when I was 15 or 16 and nobody knew who I was now I'm actually halfway decent not interested um and so that was the one thing that fired me up. But by then I'd left school. You used to leave school at 16. I had a job, um, and it was my dad actually who was really not happy. He, he said I was heading down the, the path of um, becoming a just a you know a, a, a regular joblo brummie. Um, most of my friends when we left school they either went to work at Cadbury's or they went to work at Longbridge, which you know which was Austin Rover back then, um, British Leyland in my day. Um, and my dad wanted me to get away from that. And so anything that came around, he used to come to watch me play, talk to the coaches. And I ended up getting the chance to go up to Manchester. Me and Steve Nelson used to tank up the whatever, the M6, I guess it would have M5 um, once a week. Well, we did a couple of times where Joe Welton, um, who was the coach of the Warrington, was running a junior thing. And he's saying, yeah, you know, you need to be seen by him. Um, and he might be able to help get to the States. And I didn't even really think that was ever going to be an option. Um, and then I got a call from my, the coach, Pete Mintoft was this, the, the coach of, um, West Bromwich men's team. Um, said that there was a high school interested in me going over in the States as a foreign exchange student. Um, and I went, he said, you know, they'd like to jump on a plane. Uh, just to go out there, you've got to go into this exchange program, stay there for a year, and then come back, and you know, then you'll be on the pathway, sort of thing. You know, it'll boost your game, and then you can come and play with the men's team. How, how did that high school sports find sports. out about you? Sorry,
1: how did that high school find out about you?
0: Well, it, it was the the uh, you know the the jungle drums of the coaching network. So um, Joe Welton told a, another coach over here called Tom Becker, who was another very high pro. All the Big coaches in the domestic game then were mainly Americans. You know, back in those days, wow. everybody had two Americans, a dual national and an American coach, um, and then they would talk to their friends in the states. So Tom Becker knew a guy in the states called Harry Rest, um, mm-hmm. who was the head coach of a school called Deep Creek. Um, he told him, "There's a six-nine kid mm-hmm. who's raw as anything. Um, you want to have him?" And uh, I sort of Tom. Got in touch with Pete. Got in touch with me. You know, this, there was no emails back then or anything like that. It was all done over the phone. Yeah. I went and I spoke to my mum and dad about it. Said those would be really upsetting because you know I love my friends. And um, as I was talking, I'm not joking. My dad literally. My mum, you know, said we well, need to take time to think about it. And i sort of went into the kitchen, had a cup of tea, came back in. And my dad had the suitcase. <laughs> he was packing my bags. And I was on the plane within um, a week. Out. Gone. <laughs> Get out of here. My dad had taken, he'd been, had taken redundancy. He'd been at, worked at, um, British Leyland for 26 years. Um, and he literally spent the last of his redundancy money. He gave me, put some cash in my pocket, um, bought me a, a one-way ticket to New York to get to my aunt's house who would get me down to, um, Deep Creek, which is in Chesapeake, Virginia. And I was gone. And I went there. I had no sort of, I had no idea of what was going to happen. Um, and all I thought was, okay, I'm going to go there. I'll be here for a few months cause it's the end of September. I'll be back in June and then I'm going to go and play for a professional team. That's what I thought was going to happen.
1: And, and how, old,
0: how, old, how old were you at that
1: point? Like what year were 18. you? You were 18. Was that so Was that your senior year of high school?
0: So I did the senior year over in the States. I, as I said, I'd left school in England at 16.
1: Right.
0: Um, And I I had a job. I was working in an electrical shop, you know, modern day Curry's type environment, um, training all hours, still going and playing a lot. Um, So when I got to the States, I was effectively a senior. I got there. I took the PSAT, nailed that. Then I did the SAT. So they realized um, that I was, you know, wasn't completely stupid. (laughs) Um, I was smart enough to get through the system. Um, And so effectively, I did my senior year in high school. Um, it was, uh, and the, and the thing is, Sam, um, it would have been 1984. So I got there knowing nothing about it. So Channel 4 used to show the final four on a, about a month after it happened, an hour highlight show. So I was aware of, um, Houston, the Fire Slammer Jammer and NC State with the Miracle Shot. Um, Georgetown you know that was you know the, the, but those I look at it, those guys as heroes but of course they were sort of my same age yeah uh, so then when you get over there get off the plane um, go to quote-unquote practice the high school practice the first day and in the gym is the uh, assistant coach from University of Virginia head coach from University of Maryland le- left of um Stan Nance has come down from Boston College Tubby Smith came down from VCU, um, and Tom Abatamarco was up there from NC State. So I've got off the plane, and there's five big-name programs sitting there in the gym watching me play. Had had they come to see you? Yeah, they came to see me. So the (laughs) high school coach had told them that he had a kid coming in. There was a foreign exchange student coming in. They should come and take a look. (laughs) <laughs> and they started recruiting me. And two weeks later, I was on a visit to NC State. Wow! And so, what? what how? How did you find the the transition basketball-wise on the court
1: uh, to high school in in the states? Like, was it easier for you? Like, what sort of numbers were you putting up? How did you kind of find
0: it? Well, that's when the fun starts, <laughs> because yeah. so um, then there was there was a certain amount of we you know the competitive nature of high school basketball over there and high school sports in general. Um, some of the other high schools weren't happy that suddenly deep creek which was the best program in the region anyway um suddenly had this six eight six nine um half well no i wasn't a, i was never a decent athlete you know but <laughs> six, eight, six, nine could just turn up out of the blue that took them pushed them over the edge i mean there was nobody who was ever going to compete with them and so they accused them of recruiting so long story short i the um, the high school coach was found guilty of what they call proselytizing, recruiting. You're not allowed to recruit, and then they said he'd been over to the state, uh, over to um, the UK, uh, the summer before, and watched me play, which wasn't true. Um, um, and long story short, he lost his job, and I was made ineligible um, to play. Wow. So I actually ended up playing in a rec league um, <laughs> with a bunch of playground legends but you know what I learned more I, I, so I trained I could go to practice with the high school team and I supported them quite a lot and I used to go watch them play and um, would have been desperate to have actually had a chance to play against them the, the biggest name locally at the time well one was already established J.R. Reed who went on to right. North Carolina um, he played over at Kempsville um, and so there was a lot of it. so if, by the time I got made ineligible there was talk of what was going to happen when Deep Creek played Kempsville to see if this foreigner could do anything against JR, I would argue probably not because he was a monster <laughs> in high school. Um, and then Alonzo Morning was coming through. He was a sophomore and he uh, was the absolute arch enemy high school. So Indian River just around the corner. Um, and, you know, little did we know then that that 15 year old strip of um, stuff was going to turn into a future Hall of Famer. So how many um, how many so games did you get to play in high school before you got uh, made ineligible? Sorry? How many games did you actually play in high school before? Oh, you didn't get play to any. play any? Didn't get to play any. Just go to practice. And then I started playing. When I say rec- these playground legends, though, I learned more with them, I would argue, in that one year. Because these were all guys who had been good enough but had never made it. You know, they dropped out of school. Or they, you know, so they didn't keep their grades up. Or they, you know, they'd f- f- given up. They'd, fought, they'd found girls. And so they'd stopped training. But these were some of the most talented players I'd ever come across. I remember this guy called Pudding, um, Joe Smith, I think his name was. I mean, he could shoot from anywhere. Sort of like forty. Now half court was nothing for him, but he'd never even been to college. And but they taught me about how to play the game. So in this rec league, and they were trying to help me um, because the high school, the college coaches used to come and watch me play in the rec league, um, and they would feed me and they would, you know, they taught me so much about how to play the game. You know just the concept of setting screens and then you know rolling which sounds sounds a obvious nowadays um, but that was a, a massive lesson for me and in terms of numbers i don't know I mean we won the league we were going we were in um, I was playing against grown men over there basically yeah um, got no idea what kind of numbers I put up tell the truth you know it would have been because back then there wasn't really stats being tracked per se I mean I wasn't a, 40 50 point a game, kind of big. I yeah. was a uh, you know, I could take it post up, down, low, and lay up, you know, put it in over anybody. So, you know, probably a 70% shooter getting somewhere between 14 20 something points a game, right? And, then, and so, as I said, that the um, so I'm, I'm playing, I'm, uh, I've got to playing in a completely foreign country, culture shock hammered me. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. I was like, it's America. They all speak English. Oh, no. It's so different over there. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, you know, the, well, just, I was just a, uh, you know, working class kid from Birmingham, um, heavy Brummy accent, just loved playing basketball. And I wasn't, you know, academically, I wasn't stupid. So I breezed through the high school system over there.
1: Yeah.
0: And sort of gave me, I saw the opportunity and suddenly I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to university. I'm going to, um, which nobody in my family had ever gone to university. So very different to what you've got now where the young, the, you know, the young boys, girls and, bo- uh, lads coming through, I'm going to go to high school, get seen by coaches, go to college, you know, yeah. the degrees support, then we're going to come back or they're going to the academies. It was nothing like that set up back then.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so there'd probably be seven or eight kids would be at college in the States and that, and I would just became one of them. And so what, what made you decide to go to VCU? Um, Tubby was the um, – so Tubby Smith was the, the lead recruiter. He recruited me from day one, and he stuck through me, with me through thick and thin. I had the, the ups and downs that you would expect any high school kid to have. Um, I got offered a scholarship by NC State within two weeks of getting there. And that, this was, so they won the uh, national championship in 1983. Yeah. So I've been in the states for two weeks. Get off the plane, <laughs> fly me down. Um, I'm in uh, the. Uh, I had dinner with Jimmy Valvano, um, and I was awestruck, but I didn't really appreciate what it was. And they put me into his championship room, and they show me them winning the national championship. It didn't mean anything to me, really. I was more concerned about whether or not Birmingham was going to ever beat Villa. I mean, that, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, it was. <laughs> I was more, more of a fan of cricket and I didn't, there was no knowledge to have. So why they were like, now show me the championship rings, all the diamonds in it. And I was like, I'm not that good. I I had, I really had a crisis of confidence. I was like, there's no way I'm good enough. I just didn't reply. And I was being bombarded by universities up and down the, the, the the United States. Every school was recruiting me. And I was like, there's no way that's, you know, they're looking for Patrick Ewing. I'm not Patrick Ewing. And so then, but Toby was there, and he was there throughout, and he was honest with me. Uh, he said, "Look, big fellow, you're you know you've got great potential, but you know you're you're raw. It's going to take time to work with you." It was close to so Richmond is about a two hour drive away from where I went to high school. Um, I wanted to stay close to that family, my exchange family. As I said, I've gone three thousand miles from home already. Yeah, I'm going another three thousand miles. Or I always joke and say, on reflection. I should have at least taken the visit to the University of Hawaii. I can't believe I didn't do that. I mean, <laughs> it was, and of course, it, the rules were a bit looser back then as, as, as well. Yeah. So, um, I got the call from Hawaii and they said, we're going to, we'll fly you out there. Um, it'll be a private jet from San Francisco out to, um, uh, whichever island it was Honolulu. Um, the media guide, instead of having a picture of like the Captain Duncan or some, you know, massive stadiums, that media guy had the players on a yacht with the cheerleaders in bikinis laid back. And I was like, what? But I was, by then, I was, sick. I was like, no, I'm staying on the East Coast. And so the final, I looked long and hard at University of Virginia. But again, ACC, um, I mean, I was more of a fan of the ACC than I was to never consider wanting to play there. Georgetown recruited me quite hard. But again, they had Patrick Ewing. Um, uh, I was like, there's no, well, Actually, the, the smart thing was, is what Tubby actually told me. He said, you can go to one of these bigger schools, but they'll just recruit over you. And yeah. so, you know, you make there for a year or two. So that on balance was a smart thing to do. Um, and then, um, so it was VCU and Seton Hall. Um, and uh, just, uh, just, I'll give you one example of how stupid I was back then. So, um, I na- narrowed it all down. So VCU or Seton Hall. Tubby used to come every single day, used to come to watch me practice. Um, we were his family we used to come and stay with mine the family I stayed with so we were very close Um, the guy from Seton Hall John Carroll he used to come down every day Um, and the head coach of Seton Hall at the time was PJ Calissimo and he said look if you come here I'm going to make you uh, a, a first round pick so you will be an NBA player and I just didn't believe him I was like there's no way that's true and at the time, Seton Hall was rock bottom of the Big East. They were right. the worst team. Uh, when On my visit, um, they played at home to St. John's with Chris Mullin, Bill Wennington, um, Howard Glass, uh, Walter Berry. Gosh, I still remember the starting five. It was amazing. <laughs> Again, I, I was a fan, not a player. Yeah. They took me over to Meadowlands. I met um, Chocolate Thunder, Daryl Dawkins, yeah. um, because they were connected with the Nets. You know, PJ McCullough, I was mean, basketball royalty at the time he was just the head coach of the worst school in the big east uh, so i got there and, but i loved it there new york scared the crap out of me um way too scary um so i've got pj telling me i'm going to be um playing on tv national tv in a, an nba player and vcu and they're the worst team in the big east vcu at the time was ranked number 10 or 11 in the nation um winning the Sun Belt. Um you know, so I said, well, nationally ranked already, part of a program. They showed me what they're going to teach me how to do. The jump hook was what they sold me on. and Eventually, I chose VCU. Roll forward three years. Um VCU is, you know, we're middle of the pack in the Sun Belt. Haven't been anywhere near the NCAA tournament. And Seton Hall's playing for the national championship <laughs> on TV. <laughs> and he's got a big stiff in there. Um uh, That could, well, I say, could have been me. It was uh, and I was like, oh wow, and I was, I, I just, I was imagine that the, the harsh words they would have had if they'd bumped into me. But I mean, we stayed in touch for a while. But was there any um, regret you had about your decision at that point? No, no. no, I was in love as well, Sam. Albert, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, come on, you know, again, working class brummie goes to the states and suddenly. The rainbow effect of women, girls from around the world (laughs) are on your doorstep. No, I fell in love with that. So I was like, no. Um, As I said, if I did it all again, I would, I would be very happy to go back to VCU. I'm a proud VCU RAM. I mean, I'm so proud of where the program is now. Um, I think it was a, you know, I I had a great career there. Um, And again, as always, twists and turns. Ultimately, I got let down by the system. In so much as my senior year, we had a new coach come in, um, big name, Sonny Smith, who had been the coach at Auburn. He coached um, Charles Barkley and Chuck Person. Um, He came to VCU and effectively cleared house. I mean, he came in, and on day one, he had the object of his desire was um, a superstar high school player in Richmond um, called Kendrick Warren, and he brought in about eight JUCOs and just went after Kendrick. Spent the first year recruiting Kendrick. Just kind of discarded all the existing players, um, so as myself and uh, the other senior, um, and so my numbers dropped down. I think I was averaging, I was averaging double, close on a double double my junior year. Yeah. Led the nation rebounding for about three quarters of the season my junior year. Broke the record at um, uh, the Indiana Classic. They used to have I don't know if they still have it. Uh, well, they do still have it, but um, the, the record for rebounding there um uh that stood for years and years and years uh when i had so over the two days i think i had 35 or something rebounds i had 19 rebounds against indiana um and they were ranked number one in the nation at the time uh so that sort of i was like i can play a little bit but i still never believed i was an nba player yeah still never i mean there's just they just looked like players i wanted to be like not who I was I was a very humble working class Brummie um, and then I so then and then I became a bit of a radical as well because I, 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 I thought there was something wrong with the system um, which again an argument that's still going on today um, about the value of a scholarship um, there was a study that was done while I was over there and for every dollar that VCU spent on me they got 64 back um, and if you imagine my scholarship was about $20,000 a year, you, you know, the numbers for NCAA Division One men's basketball just adds up really quickly. Doesn't yeah. you think about the revenue they're generating? And yet they couldn't pay for me to wash my clothes. All right. you, know, you know, just, and that's still, I mean, that's still true today. I mean, you know, so it's not oh, all yeah. poor on me, but that was the kind of thing I thought was wrong. So when I, when I graduated, um, uh, you know, I've been recruited, well, I say recruited, uh, NBA teams contacted me through my senior year. Again, i was told you I didn't think I was good enough. So I never even bothered writing back. So I had <laughs> uh, about 12, uh, six, eight years later, my wife found letters from the Chicago Bulls, about seven of them. Because I never threw <laughs> them away. I had the Bulls. Um, Jordan was, <laughs> was in his formative days. So Jordan was like his third year. And I was like, they stink anyway. <laughs> so the Bulls, the Timberwolves, and the Clippers were recruiting me. And I was like, come on. Again, little did I know. And if you look at what the Bulls actually worked with over the years, yeah, I mean, if you look, the five man for the Bulls ended up just being a big rebounder who got two shots at the beginning of the game and just took up space. That, yeah. That's the definition of my career. I was like, oh man, <laughs> I could add strings. But you know, I take it all with. Um, you know, the pinch of salt, of uh, you know, that's just the way things go. You know, sometimes it's not I, I you know, nobody did me wrong. I was ignorant. I didn't understand how the system worked, um, you know, to the point, well, an NBA team, if they want me, they'll draft me. And they're like, well, no, you actually need to fill in the questionnaire and send that back to them. <laughs> yeah. So you, you didn't reply to any of the NBA teams contacting you at Duh! all? No, not at all. I was like, no, no way I'm going to be good enough. Wow. And then I finished my – and as I said, I was having a rotten senior year as well. Um, so, you know, I wasn't getting on um, with the – you know, the team didn't do well. And I just, I just didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and then I was frustrated with the system as well. Um, I was on a number of academic things as well. So I was, um, I was offered a postgraduate scholarship. Um, and I graduated on time. So that was something that was really good. I had a degree in information systems with a minor in psychology. I got offered a job and a, and a scholarship. I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to graduate school. Um, and I'm going to go work for this custom engineering company. Um, which was basically a programming job. Um, and I was, everything was set. That's what I wanted to do. I'd had enough. I'd, I was like, my time is done. I've had six, seven years. It's been fun, but I'm not doing it anymore. Um, and I'd enrolled in graduate school, and then I got a phone call. Um, Kevin Cadle phoned <laughs> me up. Uh, so, well, I'm not going to do the Kev impression, but basically said, come and play, we've got a one-year contract for you, got a spot, come and play for Kingston. And I went to the guy who'd hired me, um, the Reverend Joe Johnson, that was his name, who was the, the managing director of this uh, pretty big software company called Intergraph, um he said you know what take a year out go play so we'll hold the, jo- the job open for you um and so i said caitlin yes i'll go um and then um i said "Well, you know just play one year then i'm going to go back um just a, a, a one year later the reverend joe johnson was now in jail for pedophilia oh, geez. Uh, so that jo- so suddenly uh, that job wasn't open anymore um but that aside i just kept playing and it just it, you know so i get off the plane um Cadel picks me up at the airport at Heathrow, takes me back to his house, said, we've got a game tonight. Um, so we've got your stuff with you. Uh, and I walk into the, the change room in Tolworth and I sit down. I've got Alton Bird on my right, Alan Cunningham on my left, Martin Clark right opposite, Trevor Gordon looking like this angry monster. And I was like, what? I'm playing with these guys? And then the journey began. We went out and they hammered some team by 30 points and I got to play. And... It was again, I got to play with the you know, guys that'd been my heroes. When I left, Alton Burr, come on man. Yeah
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) You get the chance to play with Alton and Alt Alt just said, Hey Mark, great to meet you and then (laughs) and you know, again people I'd hero worshipped I'm now on the same team with. So it just almost again and I still didn't think I was that good, um and as I say fifteen years later I retired. Well, the basics, I, I, you know, I, if you, may, you have to bear in that mind constantly. I never thought I was particularly good. So all that I focused on was making my team win. So I figured, you know, Alton's doing going to be the superstar. Al's going to go and get 20 rebounds and 20 points. Martin Clark will make every three-point shot available. All I've, got, all I've got to do is get him open. And we'll win championships, and that will be great. Um, but I never actually thought that what I was doing had an impact on the game. You know, it wasn't me, it was just this is the team, and that's where my whole team ethos came in. Um, and then two weeks after I got there, we are playing first round of the, the EuroLeague qualifiers um, against Seska Moscow who yeah. we beat by 17 points at home, and then we went and... Um, we, we lost by two on the return leg. So we get to the final eight. We're in the semi-finals of the EuroLeague. Yeah. I mean, again, this this was amazing. We're playing against the greatest teams in Europe at the time: Aris, Limoges, um, Leverkusen. You know, and it was you know. And I'm on this journey. Meanwhile, you know, I was fat. I was out of shape as well. Um, they were telling me that Trevor Gordon had lost 80 pounds or something in weight over the summer because he'd had some. Some issues with um, his previous clubs at Derby and Bracknell, um, and the, the first thing that made me take it seriously was Kaelor came in the door one day, gave me a letter, and I opened it and he said, um, "You've got to lose 50 pounds um, every every month that you're over whatever the weight was. I can't remember. You're going to be fined 400 pounds. Um, <laughs> my only getting paid 1,200. I was like, hold up." <laughs> Gonna be kidding me, right? So then I had to start. I just started running. Um, Alton told me I had to play um, because I was trying to do it so much for the team. And the, the best line of advice I ever had from Alton, he said, "Mark, play with your hands up. When I pass you the ball, it's time to shoot." And that was it. Never, I never had to create my own shot. And if you're playing with the best point guard in the history of British basketball. I was averaging 18 points a game. <laughs> you know, was like, all I got to do is run screen and roll, screen and roll. We ran screen and roll for. This was before screen and roll became the only offense that teams run. Yeah. Um, in those days, the Pacers, they had Reggie Miller, and that was that single double across the baseline screen. There were teams trying to run flex. Um, but, I mean, I became a student of the game. So, So now we're into the... What what would you say was the general the general
1: um, state of the BBL back then? Like in terms of, uh, obviously, you know, you were, you guys were competing in Europe. Kind of was it a league that you aspired to play in, or that, that younger British players aspired to play in, or?
0: Yeah. You know? So back then, I would. It's safe to say that yes, the uh, the. So every team had to use young. British players they had to, and they had to play them as well they had to make a difference um you know so there, you could have two Americans a dual national um so you know there was a, the players like Martin Clark were who I still would argue is probably would be in the top five best British players of all time if you actually you know go do do the research I mean that guy was an unbelievable player unbelievable walked away from the game because of the faults of the BBL at the time Compared to what it was, what it turned into 10 years later, it was a thoroughly professional league. The biggest difference was there was a, um, a commissioner come CEO of the BBL, Mike Smith, who was accountable for everything that went wrong. Now, of course, he blamed the owners when you argued with him, but at least you had somebody to talk to. Each team would have at least a couple of juniors uh, um, on their bench, getting court time as well. But if you bear in mind that most teams had at least six or seven British players, um, you know, there was opportunities to play. Not very many guys were going off to the States either um, because there wasn't the ways of getting there. It was all done through word of mouth. Um, so, the, you know, some of the guys who played, Dave Gardner up in Manchester was a good example. Steve Nelson, another one, never went to the States, Played yeah. in, um, you know played domestically for his whole career uh you know big joe joe white i mean that um i came back one summer and trained with portsmouth um and there was joe nelly dave harris but from leicester you know there were you know these were you know Joel moore you know because i think Joel went and spent two week holiday in the states never actually did anything there um so there were lots of british players coming through of course the only the ceiling was you had to stay in the british league because if you tried to go overseas you were a foreigner so you were going up against the americans to get one oh, of their jobs I see. which was then before bosman came in yeah. and that's you know that's the main transformational ruling that i would say helped a few players and destroyed the fortunes of the bbl really well, did overnight they did it
1: well, what year what year was the bosman ruling
0: 1996.
1: And, and that, I, that was at that point, the, the BBL then made the switch to five Americans. Was that,
0: is that right? Yep. Yeah. And, the, and the, the writing was on the wall. The moment they did that. Um, I mean, just to, you know, I've already, we talked a bit about my playing career. So we went into, we were playing in Europe. We won my first two years. The other team at that year was Sunderland and they had Steve Bucknell, Ross Saunders, um, Clyde Vaughan, Scott, what was his name, Scott Patterson. Um, uh, but they had young kids like Colin Kirkham was the, the, a lad from Newcastle Sunderland. I think he was from Sunderland as well. They had a number of um, local players who come through, and they were tough-nosed players. They weren't great athletes, but they knew how to play the game, um, and they'd been well coached. And the same thing would happen if you went to Manchester. There'd be a bunch of Joe's or old, old Joe Forbes old players playing for them um, alongside a couple of Americans. Yeah. Uh, so Carl Miller had come through uh, Warrington Manchester Junior program um, was, you know, he was a beast at 14 years old, he just stopped growing as all um, you know, same thing You know, palace you know, we would to mention Bucknell Joe Moore, Joe White, you know, those guys were, came through the system, they came and, and trained with the men's team and had an opportunity to play, they were given housing they were given cars, they weren't on great salaries but they were getting paid enough to make it, you know, there was a career pathway you could see yeah. Um, at the top end, the guys like Martin Clark were so good. I mean, they were, they, those were in the days when a number of the clubs were owned by football teams as well. So they were getting paid, not football players' wages, but they were getting paid you know, big contracts, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds, which in the early 90s was a good whack of money. Um, and then Bosman came, which... And, and the, the the thing that changed, what Bosman did, Sam was it meant that suddenly I was a European, not a foreigner. So overnight, I could go and try and get a job in Greece, which is where I actually went to, or France, and I'm competing with the, the, the domestic players, not the American. Yeah. Again, the quality of Americans that you had... you know, If you go back into the 90s, before Bosman, when teams had two Americans, and some of the legendary players that these guys had, um, we mentioned... Uh, okay, Alton had taken a passport, but Russ Saunders, Colin Irish ended up being British, um, Gene Waldron in Leicester, uh, uh, Ernest Lee in Derby, you know, every team had a solid, so I, there was no chance in heck of competing against those guys. Dale Roberts in Bracknell, Dan Drillo in Bracknell, I mean, these guys who still, like, the all-time scorer, leading scorer at Seton Hall or something ridiculous. Um, but then Bosman meant I could go and compete against the Frenchies and the Italians and go after their jobs. And those guys, I was pretty confident I could take those on. Um, but the, in 94, 1994, you asked what the state of the game was. Um, I finally got picked for England, um, which was great. I you know, recognized a chance to play on the men's team. Um, but the, the, we had these issues where we would travel um, and there'd be no physio with the team, but there'd be a head of delegation. And the head of delegation and the coaching staff will be sitting at one end of the table drinking wine with their dinner. And we can't even get a bag of ice to, you know, take care of our you know, injuries after training. Yeah. You know, you're washing socks out in sinks. I was like, no, this isn't right. And I talked to some players, as you do when you're playing in Europe. And they said, well, of course, you know, the Players Association takes care of that. I was like, but what? What's one of them? <laughs> um, the quote unquote union was the solution. Um, so we uh, there was a group of senior players established a players' association, um, which was not well received by the um, the clubs by the Bbl um, but there was benefits that were clear to happen, and the rumblings of the bosman ruling were you know it was in the courts then um, but it it, it was wasn 't a direct uh, um, outcome. It was just we needed to organise ourselves. In order for us to be heard, um, you know, there were clubs that were going bust and players not getting paid. Um and the clubs could just do it willy nilly. The way the contracts, the players' contracts were back then, um they had to when you signed you had a twelve week um trial period, um I think it ended expired november thirtieth or something. And the amount of players that would get cut on November twenty ninth <laughs> and was was astounding, you know, and I won't name and shame, but I was—it was just ridiculous. You'd have yeah. clubs that would have this guy paying for three months, cut him, and then bring him back on a week-to-week contract, and yeah. that seemed okay. So there was no—the um, the league was breaking up because the sponsorship money was dropping off. Um, Sky was in its infancy then, and you know, we—I'm we'll, sure we'll move on to. The, the amount of times that the – I always say if there's an A and B decision, right or wrong decision, um, throughout my playing career, the BBL would always take the wrong one. You know, <laughs> I digital – massive mistake. You, know, you turned your back on Sky, you know, and, then, and anyway, we'll come back to that bit. Um, so the Players Association was set up mainly for two things. One, I wanted to have medical insurance because the medical insurance, as a member of the um, – uh, registered member of the England Basketball Association – You basically got a thousand pound if you got an eye knocked out. Uh, I think two thousand pound if you died. And that was it. (laughs) Uh, I'm representing my country and you're not going to give me, there's no guarantee of care for me as the players. And what about the other kids, the juniors? Um, you know, senior players that, you know, everyone's going to arbitration about these issues because they're getting cut and, you know, coaches, clubs would recruit Americans. And they would send them the contract, but they would just send them the back page of the contract for them to sign. Wouldn't even send the full contract. <laughs> yeah. It was... I, I mean, I, I, if we had more time, I could tell you some horror stories about the way players were treated in those days. Those playing conditions needed to be improved. That's why the Basketball Players Association was established. Do, do, you, think it's, do you think it's crazy now when you look at the BBL and you see that uh, the, you know, there's been rumble?
1: Like I think Kieran Achara said a couple of times there needs to be some sort of players' association, but still there isn't, oh, there isn't one.
0: That's the, one of the most... The glaring, obvious steps to take would improve the, the, uh, the, the, the sport in this country almost overnight yeah. would be to organize a players association. Uh, and our argument back then was actually there's a benefit. There needs to be a player's voice that needs to be listened to and there needs to be some structure to it so that it's not arbitrary. So when they needed something from the players, they would then, oh, well, we need to go and talk to so and so, but they didn't know who to talk to. Mm. So that, you, the, the players association gives you a, a, you know, a coherent voice, a, a, you know, a solid um, a canvassing of opinion from within the 130 or how many players, are, you know, 150 players are playing in the BBL. That seems to make sense. Um, and, and, of course, so we, we lobbied for a contract, which we got changed into what I should say for English. You know, it was, it was a horrible playing contract. They changed that um a medical insurance and simple things like um when you travel for national international duty they would do your laundry um there would be a physio travel with us and this it was just simple things that they just never considered i don't think that they outwardly wanted to you know have their players get hurt but if somebody got hurt when you're on the road playing for england they'd go and ask the other team if their physio would take a look at you <laughs> just you know i just the, absolutely madness and then the big and then the big so with the, the start association players have been together about two years and then the bosman ruling happened and straight away um you know we start lobbying with um zbba back then i suppose with the basketball association saying you know you've got to take the be careful here don't overreact um there's not you know the, because the bbl was saying right overnight All the players are going to leave next season. Everyone's going. I said, well, no, that's not. There's probably five or six of us that are good enough to go and play overseas. The rest will maybe go. um, But that's okay because if you lose us, you can, if I displace a Frenchman, you can hire him. Yeah. You know, and and it it seemed like you're replacing like with like. But of course, and they'd never own up to this. But at the back of that was Americans were cheaper than British players. And that's something that still rings true, I suppose. If you're still yeah. be trying to um, uh, um, compete internationally, the domestic players, because the, there's a smaller talent pool to choose from, obviously cost more money. Yeah. Someone like Scantlebury, another British great, um, would have cost more, far more money than the Americans that played on his team. Um, so, and the BBL said that they wanted five work permits. That's what it was. It wasn't five Americans. It was five work permits. That was their language. Um, the EBBA assured us that they would support the players in this, and we had a, you know, we, we canvassed all the players. We had a report, we presented it to them. Um, we had to go to Leeds for a meeting between the BBL, uh, EBBA, and ourselves, the player association. I represent the player association. Mike Smith from the BBL and Mark Hannon, who was the secretary of the EBBA, and Dave Ransom, I think was CEO, um, where the EBBA were going to say what they were going to support. Our argument was. You stay at two work permits and then respect Bosman because you didn't need a work permit to come from France. Mm. So the Ameri- so, when, so BBL's position was they turned it around. First of all, they said we're going to have – every team has to have five British players. And then uh, alongside that, you're allowed five work permits. Now, those work permits could be used on anybody. They don't have to be Americans. They can hire French, German, whatever. And it's like, but we all know you're going to hire cheap Americans yeah. or cheaper Americans. And the British players will get squeezed out because then, um, you know, you'll end up. well, I just need five players, you know. We'll take, we were Kingston were already hindered when we played in domestically. Um, the Guildford side I played with um, that got to the final eight of the Euro League, we had to sit players down when we played domestically. They said it was because of the salary cap, but it wasn't a salary cap. It was a talent cap. Um, you know that we had we went eight nine deep um, because we had to to play in Europe, but the other clubs couldn't compete and obviously instead of raising the bar and bringing everybody up to that level yeah. it's like a you know they want to bring everybody back down to this base level mike smith the ceo said up uh, the bbl will thrive if we have if the the games are close we need a bunch of two-point games really close games exciting games i said well not if the talent's horrible yeah you know if the standards poor um and as and as i said in my formative years there were not household names, but guys who I knew to look out for. I knew British players. I knew who they were. But uh, I said, once you've got this Five Americans thing, they're going to f- just throw that out straight away. And the BBA said, sure us they were going to back us, and we sat down that meeting, and they said, we're going to side with BBL. Wow. And I was like, wow. Well, so
1: w- why, uh, like, what was the motivation on the BBL's part? to go five work permits because they could just get essentially cheaper, cheaper Americans. It saves them money. Is it a money saving thing? They
0: argued, their argument was that all of the British players are going to go to Europe. We won't have anybody to play. And if EBBA doesn't give us the opportunity to have five work permits, we won't be able to operate a league. That's what they said. Right. But clearly, you know, Sam, you're not, if it looks like, smells like and tastes like, it probably is. (laughs) The Americans, they were going to, those work permits were going to be a lot than the british players and yeah. so what actually happened in practice was um and there was a, there was precedent as well because rugby league had just been moved to a summer sport and they'd had and so we so the grb was a, a bigger union that was supporting us and, and they'd been through this with rugby league and they said um history tells them that whenever whatever the work permit level that is laid out that's what clubs will go to and that's happening in rugby league. They went with three. They had three. They went to four. Everybody bought four players in. Yeah. And of course, it's, it's all changed now. And overnight, BBL clubs would hire their get their work permits f- filled first. Uh, I'd say maybe ten players went straight away. Um, myself, Steve Bucknell, uh, I think some some like Andrew Bailey went over there. You know, there wasn't there wasn't an exodus of players because the, the truth of the matter is we weren't say we of the, you know, of the 80% of the league that was British um, probably only 20% were good enough to compete in Europe yeah. so you know, there was never going to be an excess but then the clubs immediately started hiring their five Americans first pushed down the player of British players if you wanted to play you had to play for next to nothing um, and there was no reason for clubs to develop junior players now why do I need a junior player I'm just going to get an you know, a, a, you know, a, a American off a videotape Oh, yeah. yeah, he looks good. He can shoot straight. And it happened. And within two years, um, and then of course they just doubled down on their stupidity because then they took the, um, the, uh, the NTL money they, without even telling Sky. They just went and said, right, we're off and moving over to NTL moving on to this cable deal. Yeah. Um, so they lost their TV deal, didn't have any names to sell. Um, and overnight the game just kind of took a big massive backward step. It, just, can, it, it was just set up for failure.
1: Can you explain, uh, for, you know, I, I vaguely, roughly know what happens with the, the NTL deal, um, but obviously a lot of people talk, talk about it as kind of yeah. like a pretty big uh, turning point or reflection point. Well, yeah. or what, so exactly, what exactly up, happened, lay yeah? The land of
0: television. So what, hap- what you, in that part of the 90s, Sky, as I said, was emerging. So when I first started playing professionally, we would turn up on the BBC um, if the racing from Haydock was snowed off, they would have put one of our European Cup games on, and you know everybody still talks about um, Kingston versus Aris at Crystal Palace. I think I see that popping up, um, and then the Cup Final, Trophy Final, and Playoff Finals would all be on the BBC. That's that was the coverage we had. Yeah. Sky then started sniffing around um, and started giving more regular coverage, um, and they wanted us to go into friday night but the league wouldn't move the games so then what they plumped on was saturday evening sky sports one immediately after Gillette soccer saturday so the bbl game would be on 6 p.m um every saturday night i mean you couldn't get a better tv window um if you asked for it then ntl announced they were launching this cable service in the uk um and went to talk to BBL and promised them, now the numbers, are, this is anecdotally, as I understand it, they promised them 10 million pounds, a million pounds a year for 10 years, guaranteed money. Um, BBL said yes, signed the contract, went back to Sky and said we're leaving. <laughs> You know you would always you know if you look back now you say, "Well, of course you would go and say to sky we 've been approached by another television company. would <laughs> yeah. you like to count a bit <laughs> yeah but they did. they said no we're we 're going, so you can imagine what happened to sky, how Sky took that they were upset because all the you know at the, the time we were giving them thirty um weeks of fresh programming plus the playoffs so that's you've times that by two hours at sixty it 's about about 80 hours of television to film. And if you bear in mind that TV, I'll with a little bit of TV knowledge, TV networks um, generally work between 15 and 20% of their output is what we would call fresh content. Don't, don't you know, new. You yeah. know, other, other than that was repeat. So if you get news channels, that doesn't count. But the BBC, for example, BBC One has about 30% fresh programming. Right. Everything else is repeats on there. Sky Sports is high, and it was 20%. So 80 hours times that by five, effectively, that's 400 hours of programming with repeats that you were taking away from them. So they were not best happy with that, and they had to find something else. And here, again, an example of where A and B um, situation, one's right, one's wrong. BBL, British basketball chose the wrong one. So we walk away from Sky, I say we, British BBL walks away from Sky goes off to NTL and just to finish that part of the story, NTL goes bust almost immediately. They never paid one of the checks um, so um, Sky end up well, BBL ends up with no money um, they end up on ITV digital, which was another platform that was launched out of that um, without the money that they were going to get. They go back to Sky and say okay we 'll come back by which time Sky has decided. Um, that they're going to put rugby league in that 6 p.m. slot on a Saturday night, wow. and if you look at fortunes of rugby league today, you know TV history is littered with examples of that, where somebody has has chosen, has left the window open, somebody else gets in there, and bang, it takes off. And at that those times, the sponsorship money that would have been spent on BBL suddenly is, is being on spent on rugby league yeah. because they've given the audience so that's got nothing to do with the quality of play so if you imagine now you've got two things that are, uh, uh, that happened in the late 90s you lost you've def- uh, def- lowered the quality of your product by going to five americans and just five players um very you know there's no british players really playing anymore um you know to and to illustrate that um, great team that it was and people still talk about the, the, the Chester Jets the jet wash um, and how they you know Robbie Piers just played five players it just had five Americans four five foreigners because Perros from New Zealand yeah. that was a tough five but not one junior player that actually got court time and yet they were in the community in uh, 180 schools doing development programs and you said mean, they couldn't find any players they could bring through well why do I need to do that I can pay this American a couple thousand dollars a month instead of, you know, this British kid. I've got to pay tax, national yeah. insurance. You know, so that's that. And you've lost your TV deal. So you've got a lower quality product, no TV. And you want Budweiser to renew that million pound sponsorship deal. <laughs> Suddenly it wasn't Budweiser League anymore. And it was a self, you know, a self-perpetuating cycle because now you've got no TV, you've got no commitment to your junior players, you've got no junior players coming through. Ultimately, that impacts on the national team, um, because, you know, you've got the, it's almost by virtue of the players that are in Europe. Um, The Players Association had really lost its, let's say it's lost its way, didn't have the same direction um, once I'd gone off to Europe, you you know, just because I was actually working on it day to day. I mean, good people took over, but, suddenly, with five Americans, the um, the value to the players of b- being part of a players' association was minimised. Yeah, Because they were only here for eight months and they went back to the States. So the value of the whole, whole players' association when I was here was the British players, we need this association as a voice. So there's all sorts of things at play that sort of devalued the game. Um, and if I go back, um, I, t- I took a prize for that as well. So... Um, starting the players' association and the, the uh, very public spat that we had with BBL and EBBA over the work permits, suddenly I wasn't picked for England anymore. Um, and it became very obvious that I'd been blackballed uh, from the national team. Um, and you know, ironically, three guys that backed me up, my backups on club teams, were playing for England over the rest of my career, but I never got played. And it wow. got you know really... And that, that's one of my biggest upsets to this day. Um, and you know, I, when I say you can generally forgive anybody for anything, the greatest moment of my basketball career was my first England cap. And so for I blame the head coach because he didn't have the guts to pick me. For him to take away my international career was just disgraceful. I would argue. So can, can I, who was uh, the head coach? Laszlo Ah, oh, that was Laszlo. Okay. Yeah. So Laszlo was the. Uh, the head coach, and, it, you know, he, he got to the point where, um, uh, you can ask Rob Dugdale about this, he, he's, he's, he said, why won't you pick him, and he said, if you pick, he said, if he has to play on the team, I'm going to quit, oh. you know, so, and would the England team have done any better with me? I don't know, I don't think so, but that's not the point, the point yeah. was, I've never even given the chance to even, yeah. you know, investigate, <laughs> i be a part of it, so, um, so, the, so that the, the, the uh, and there I say, and the other thing is, from that mid nineties, that national team. So the England team um, went from we beat Russia um, in Manchester, uh, who twelve months later won the bronze, silver bronze medal at the World Championships. We ran Yugoslavia, who were the world champions, to um, you know two four points at the out Al- Royal Albert Hall, um, and then four or five years later, there's no England team. You know it, it's well there was no talent feeding the fire and no organisation behind it. Yeah. I was I always um highlight one point in nineteen so the the structure of qualification for the Olympics um was very different back then. So you, there was an actual Olympic tournament and so what you had to do was you go to qualification, um and then depending on where it was, if it was in Europe it would be the top five teams would go to the Olympics if it was somewhere else with the top three. So in 88, we played qualification for Seoul and got to the final eight. Um, uh, 92, we played for qualification for Barcelona. Um, lost at the group stage. It was too, I mean, we had Lithuania. Difficult group we had. We ended up finishing. I think we had to beat Lithuania to get through, and there was no way we were going to beat that team. Um, Cadel's still upset about it, I think. But <laughs> um, Sabonis, Marshallonis, Kerdinaitis, um, you know, Kanisha versus that team was, oh, it was terrifying it was yeah. awesome um, but then after that the the you know, as so I say, England beats Russia it uh, goes on to be a bronze medal second in the groove, almost there to get to the, the, the final stage of the Eurobasket as it would be now um, and then roll forward, so we used to play France and Germany, we used to just destroy them, I mean we could play them one-legged with a hand tie behind our back and beat them we used to beat by 20 30 points in all the preparation games in 1988 you roll forward to 2000 France is winning the bronze medal in Sydney Great Britain doesn't have a team
1: yeah
0: <laughs> that's you know that so there's but there's a there's a whole bunch of circumstances around that that have got us to that point it wasn't oh there wasn't any junior players no the clubs stopped developing them there was no way for them to come through more kids were now going to the states than ever because you didn't have. A, there was no. You couldn't play over here, yeah. so they go to you know a Division three junior college <laughs> in the middle of Waco or something. You know, I'm, to the stupid <laughs> Waco College. I'm not being demeaning to them, but you think, I went to VCU, top ranked uh, nationally ranked team. Bucknors at North Carolina. Um, you know, guys. The, the Spencer Dunkley's playing up at um uh oh, where was, where was Spencer, Delaware. Yeah, Amici's Penn State and. Um, uh, Vanderbilt, you know, we got big programs our guys are in and then, uh, so I, I, I draw the line at Roger Huggins that's, that's somebody I'd love to hear on a podcast Huggins, that his generation Huggins I think is about 4 or 5 years younger than me it was about 10 years when nothing seemed to come through, nothing right. so when they started to build, when they when London got the bid for the, the Olympics and there's another right or wrong decision that BBL made the wrong one I was involved in then um, that was when they started to try to develop it again, but you are effectively building from scratch. So yeah. there was, you know, the, um, you didn't even have the coaching talent because you know, along with your, you, you started to have the, the luxury of the, the player coach. Wow, I got five Americans and make one of them the coach as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's two, double, double bubble. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, you know, economic reasons for it, but there was never, um, the biggest weakness, the biggest challenge that happened from the mid-90s onwards was that the BBL became a democracy, and it never should have been a democracy. It had to be a dictatorship. So when I say it was a democracy, each BBL club had an equal vote, um, and that was at the times when we had the big owners in there, so the martial arts, the um, Harvey Goldsmiths, you know, John Hall in Newcastle, Chris Wright, but they had this, They had an equal vote to Chester, and you know, I'm, I'm picking on Chester because the, you know a tiny club playing in the Northgate Arena with wooden backboards swinging out from the the, the back walls. You know, whereas John Hall's paying for the Metro Centre, yeah. you know, Marshall's paying to be in Wembley, Harry Rubaleski's paying to be in the, the the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham, and yet this club that's got 400 people in the stands has got the same power. So when Barry Marshall says, I want the teams we play against to put the same amount of investment into their home facilities as what we've got in Wembley, then, of course, they were always going to lose out. And that was, so the, um, and it was because of democracy. If it's a dictatorship, and they always used to say, oh, we want to be like the NBA. The biggest change in the NBA's fortunes was they put David Stern in charge. And what the angel of Stern said went. And they never did that here. They wouldn't do that. You know. And, it's, again, you're asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, I feel I'm sort of on a soapbox here, but I mean, all of the concerns, all of the issues, and my frustration, I know I sent you an email a couple of weeks ago, is that some of the issues remain exactly the same. We haven't even moved on, not learned from things that have been done wrong time and time again. You've got yeah. no players association. The thing is, the talent level, if anything, is far superior to what we had back then. Yeah. you know i read your your updates of you know brits abroad and i'm looking at the, the quality of leagues these guys are playing in you know that but they should be playing here yeah. you know that you've got to build household names there's no marketing of the sport yeah. there's no true leadership direction um the, yeah. uh, the irony is, is that you speak to any of those players and they all say that they would
1: love to play in england you know
0: of course they would yeah of course they would you know that the um you know, even the Olympics, what opportunity missed the Olympics was because ultimately it became, down, well, we're going to go and have training camp in Houston and we're going to hold our annual general meeting at the All-Star Game in Orlando. <laughs> no. Meanwhile, no one's talking to the players. Yeah. I mean, that was worse, at least in my day. I say my day. You know, we would talk to the coach. You know, he would have a conversation with us. I understand that's changed now a little bit through printed, but that's only through his Proactive um, gestures, not because it's a structure, you know. That the whoever was the the, the guy who was organising all the trips should be on the road, going to see these guys face to face, just ten minutes with them, even. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. The NBA. When when did the, the Bucks played over here? Bucks and the Knicks played a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, and one of my good friends I played with in Greece, um, Fortis. Uh, Katsikaris was the head coach, still is the head coach of the Greek national team. And it, I saw him, I was like, 14th, what are you doing here? I said, oh, well, I didn't realize you come in to watch the game. He said, no, I'm here for the free. <laughs> I was like, of course, I'm Tetekompo. He said, yeah, you know, you know, just going to come and see him. I said, oh, what, so you go out to dinner with him? He said, no, 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 no. I saw, he said, I had 10 minutes with him after shoot-around this morning. That's it. He said, but I just have to tell him that, you know, we're very proud of what he's doing and his nation's all behind him. That's, and he said, he did it without even thinking. And you can't say, oh, well, Greeks got load of money. The Greek economy at the time was not the strongest economy in the world, shall we say. Yeah. So that was how important it is, the relationship with players. How can you have a relationship in, with players and know you've got the best players if you don't even talk to them? Yeah. And I'm sure, uh, and would you, would I be incorrect in saying to you that a lot of the feedback you get from the, the men's team is they never speak to anybody from the uh, National Federation.
1: Oh yeah, of course, and yeah, you know, and more and more are going on record about that now. That that has been the the biggest, I think, probably one of the biggest gripes is that it's you know no contact all year round, and then oh we need you to play in a competition. Does yeah. you know blow up my phone or whatever? And of course, yeah, you know, exactly. But they wonder be- why no yeah. one's playing.
0: Um, and, but not only should the the federation should be involved, but there's no you know remember the other thing we came out of. Um, uh, the London Olympics was this, this word "legacy" got banded around. <laughs> yeah. I, I think anybody I think there should be a criminal sentence that comes with somebody using legacy without proper um, approvals for it. <laughs> Nobody actually stopped to say what legacy would be." Yeah. and that's "Oh British special hasn't got a legacy. There is a legacy. There are hundreds of players who've represented the country that have played for the B- in BBL teams, and yet there's nothing to try to engage with them. You know, as you sit there, I'm, I'm, as, um, uh, as you know, I do some uh, TV commentary now. So I was yeah. doing Maccabi Tel Aviv the other day, um, and the, um, the sporting director is Sacha Vucic, who played for Maccabi for six years, a Croatian, okay? He's gone in there. Uh, Marco Baldi, who played at London Towers for a couple of years, is the general manager of Alba Berlin, where he played for four or five years. Tony Kukoc. You know the legend, the the Croatian legend, was a is an ambassador for the Chicago Bulls. They engage with their former players because that's how you, that's how the legacy is built. Yeah. Most players today wouldn't know me. The only way some of the junior players today would know me is because I played with their dads. Yeah. Not that I should be somebody who's known, but you've got no marketing, you've got no star system. I couldn't tell you who the best British player is in the BBL now. Yeah, it's... you know, they, they, they don't do it, be, and it's because there's no. The BBL has become good at staging events; they do that very well, um, but they don't build stars. Yeah, you know, so you know, and, that, and that's, what's gonna, that's what's that's
1: what's going to sell tickets week in week out, not just to, for a one-off event. Is you've got to profile the players. Well, you
0: know? I want go. And, um, if you look at what ITV is doing with boxing at the moment. Um, and then they've gone to pay per view. Uh, I don't know if you watched the Eubank fight on Saturday, just gone. But that was they did that. That's they did that fight because Eubank Jr. is a name that people will pay to watch. Yeah. You know, so they, they build up. You know, Chris Eubank Jr. future world champion. You know, there's enough fighters that they've got some marketing behind them that people will pay to watch that person play. No one wants to pay to watch random BBL game Newcastle against Bristol why should I watch Newcastle against Bristol
1: Yeah,
0: is that because are they good teams are they bad teams it's, and again it's before you get to the product I don't know any, whereas if there was a star player um, uh, did you, uh, just, um, I was drawn into the you heard about this thing Nitro Athletics it's no. just started no. so it's a new format of athletics track and field where they have mixed teams so you know, men and women racing with each other but actually, if you look at it on the BBC, where they're showing it, um, it was on Sunday afternoon, um, Nitro Athletics featuring Usain Bolt. Yeah. Do you think people watched it because it was Nitro Athletics or because Usain Bolt was running it?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. That's the thing. You've got to have those names. And that, you know, I, I go back to even my playing days when I was at London Towers, they, there was a star system at that club. You know, Barry Marshall and martial arts had a great, you know they marked. They did marketing for a living because they were music promoters, um, but they had you know Diamond, Danny Lewis. You know everyone was had a nickname which they still have. But Danny was on the back of cornflakes boxes in Sainsburys. You know we used to joke about it. Um, uh, Carl Miller and Carl Brown. We used to wind them up as, as mates. You know saying that they were juggling watermelons outside supermarkets, but they were opening supermarkets <laughs> in their local communities. Yeah. You know but that we don't have that doesn't happen anymore I right. say it doesn't happen anymore so I mean and we were doing it badly back then so yeah. you've now you know everyone says oh well on the BBC if you look at what the BBC is doing with BBL it's actually arguably more than what it deserves they yeah. market it particularly well it's got great placement on the website um, they promote it as much as it can there's always coverage of the results but you know there's not really an angle it's just like an associated press report of what happened in the game yeah. there's no no one's got any personal interest in it. And then, as you mentioned, the national team, well, we despair over that. There's no innovation around trying to infuse the player. The players should come. Their training camps every year, regardless of what the competition is, needs to be in the UK. <laughs> yeah. because, because then we can go and watch them. Yeah. And then when they do come here, it's behind closed doors.
1: Yeah. No so, closed doors uh, games.
0: Uh, you know, when I was 16, and I, you know, I'm wide-eyed, and I see Dip Donaldson, I was like, wow, that's Dip Donaldson. He's sitting there, Martin Clark. Oh, my gosh, how great is he? But that's because I was in the training session. I'm watching them practice. These guys don't ever get to see him That's yeah. all. So there's, there's a complete fragmentation. But the thing is, though, it's actually a lot better than it was two years ago. And so, you know, you hope things would improve, continue to improve. But there's a lot... Again, I think fundamentally there's two things that are missing. There's no... Con- the, 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 the overnight wins they could have is to have a central voice for the players. It's called a players' association. Yes, by definition, that's a union. And yes, by definition, they may not agree with you. But that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. And it needs to become a dictatorship in democracy. You know, the, I, I, I sat there and um, Lisa Wainwright, who run, who's now head of British Basketball, who was someone I totally respect for my time when I used to work at Channel 4 and she was the head of um, British Volleyball and before that she was at um, Sport England um, and she knows the challenges involved in running any governing body um, but they need a, somebody, they, they need a when you say a David Stern type, you need a dictator, you need somebody who's going to say right, here's what's going to happen yeah. if it doesn't work, it's on my back and I will fall on my sword for it Yeah. whereas if you go back to 2012 nobody was accountable for anything all they wanted to do was to have their badge so they could sit on the bench Yeah. I mean sorry. well I think uh, that's a good place to leave it
1: we've um, run over run over time a little bit um, but I think what we definitely have to do is a, is a part two at some point um, because we haven't uh, scraped the surface I feel of, of the things that we could go into but I will just say thank you so much for taking the time it is much appreciated and uh, hopefully yeah, we'll meet up and do a part two at uh, some point soon
0: thank you Sam, appreciate that you are listening to the hoops fix
1: podcast the official voice of the uk's largest basketball website visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news videos and more